0: Hey Michael, how are you doing today?
1: Hey John, I'm great, thanks for having me here.
0: Great, so we have uh, Dr. Michael Zimmer is the director of the Center for Data Ethics and Society at Marquette University and kind enough to spend some time with us today. He's uh, what they would call a privacy and data ethics scholar, something that obviously we have we continue to need for, for several decades, more important now probably than ever before. I'd, I'd like to start off though, uh, describing the center, I know you've recently joined there and obviously yep. a lo- you have a long career in this space. Tell us what the center's mission is and uh, not just your role, but sort of what what you folks are trying to accomplish.
1: I think the the important aspect of the center at Marquette is starting with the mission of the university and being a, a Catholic Jesuit university, trying to focus on issues of ethics and and justice and social impact on everything that we do on this campus, having a center like like this allows us to really focus on the interesting social and ethical and even political and cultural dimensions of data in our society. So I, I sit in the Department of Computer Science, but I'm a social scientist and a privacy scholar, and I wear all kinds of hats in terms of the work I do. And Marquette's allowed me to start this center so we can really focus on these broader implications of our technology and data centric society. So I'm lucky to be able to work with technology folks like my colleagues in computer science, but also folks working in law, folks working in humanities and communication in the business school and all across campus, because pretty much every student, every major, everything that we do here is somehow going to be touched uh, by, by these broad implications of data and ethics. And that, that's what I'm here to do.
0: Yeah, that's interesting you say that as as we've talked about uh, offline, I've been fortunate to interview some of your colleagues from other centers and Center for Banking, the Center for Peacemaking. And to your point about the connection in the world that I'm part of, which we euphemistically call the the AML community or anti-money laundering slash counter-terrorist financing sanctions community. One of the things essential to successful deterrence reporting and prosecution is data, right? So one of the challenges that we've uh, started to face in the past couple of years, you know, financial institutions have obligations to report suspicious activity. They don't have to know what the crime is, but they have to know what does the data tell them about their customer's activity, you know, based on the information they took at the front end. So... Long way of saying that what happens is when you're making a decision on data and you have to say, based on the input, we think a particular customer is high risk, high risk for potential illegal activity, you you have to sort of do additional due diligence. And one of the byproducts of that is that the data sometimes isn't isn't enough. And so, for example, uh, as the Center for Peacemaking knows all, all too well, there's so many humanitarian and charitable groups around the world that need funding, right? So it's in a conflict zone in Syria or what happens. So what happens is a financial institution will make a determination, hey, based on the fact that sometimes terrorists are able to abuse charities, we put this particular entity in a bucket of high risk, and then we either don't keep them as customers or we exit the relationship. So it would seem to me that that's a clear connection to the world that you're in, making sure that the data that gets reviewed is not only relevant, but the decisioning on that data has, a, I guess, lack of a better term, has sort of ethical considerations, right?
1: Right, that's, that's precisely it. A, a big part of what I do here is I'm, I'm teaching and interacting with future data scientists or data analysts or, or all different professions that, that are increasingly using data, like you're describing, to help make decisions or to automate processes or to find insights that maybe a human wouldn't be able to identify because there's only so much that we can think about or process in in our minds. Right. But the key is that we need to understand that data itself isn't infallible and neutral and always just inherently true. <laughs> you know, and it sounds counterintuitive, but that's that's the trick is that we we can't get caught into thinking that that data is inherently going to be correct, that it still requires, you know, that, that sniff test, or, you know, we call it human in the loop now, that if you right. try to build a, a fully automated algorithmic system, um, it might be really convenient, and it might be really nice to just let the data and the AI and machine learning just run on its own, uh, but that's where we end up with some, some thorny problems, when we aren't able to think about the context or think about the, the edge cases um, or Or the other things that that the human would, would normally do in that process, so a big yeah, a big part of what I try to do is that when when I have a classroom full of students that are going to go um, build these systems and and try to improve and change the world in, in positive ways, that we have a recognition of, of sometimes there are limitations or or unintended consequences on how we collect or or use data or, or build these kinds of models
0: yeah you know that's that's a great point. one of the companies that are part of uh, AML Right Source, uh, w- where I'm, uh, where I'm employed, is an adverse media company. So, as you know, adverse media, euphemistically, is looking at um, data or looking at information sources and making determinations. Again, going back to my original example, on clients based on that. So the so the the, the sort of the, the the softball one is, you know, you find out that somebody was quote arrested. Yeah. It's in a local. It's in a local paper, but there's no other data there. It Doesn't right. tell you that that person was acquitted or, or what have you. So it seems to me that that's a really important part of this. I love your your reference to you, human involvement because you know when we talk to folks in the law enforcement community that are part of our community, they say it's great to use data, but if you don't have uh, human involvement in an investigation or a prosecution. That could be problematic, so right. I I think that's that's interesting, and it's and it sort of leads me to you, your connection as you've mentioned you lawyers, data scientists. What is the typical student's background to be to take classes in your center? Is it fairly wide open throughout the university? How does that work?
1: It is it is fairly wide open, and we've been we've been able to sort of tailor curriculum based on what that student is trying to achieve. We have we have a lot of. Um, Professionals that that are trying to gain some sort of data proficiency, <clears throat> so they can maybe move into one of these new roles at their financial services company or insurance company or or whoever it might be um, that that's going to leverage data more in decision making. So they're trying to learn some of these dashboards and maybe a little bit of coding, you know, to be able to be uh, dangerous with data, as we like to call it. Um, so right. we've designed courses to to sort of help you know give them the right kind of context around around data ethics issues. But we also have students, um, and especially some of our undergraduates, that that are more you know intense computer science you know you know kind of focus, and and they want to you know dig deep into machine learning systems and and really understand the, the technical side of what's happening. And so we can develop classes and, and curriculum that really help them understand how biases can emerge in data and what can go wrong with, you know, something like chat GPT and how do these generative AI models work and how do they um, cause problems on a more technical stance. But really my goal is to make it accessible for, for all students. Um, We've been really successful in creating some general education courses that are part of the core curriculum here at Marquette. So I have classroom now where I have students from, all of our campus that that don't know algorithms beyond what their TikTok feed is showing them in the morning, and right. right. Uh, but that but that gives us a great opportunity to start exploring these issues in ways that are meaningful for them. So uh, we've been we've been lucky to be able to sort of cover all of those different uh, aspects of people's engagement with with algorithms and data.
0: I know that some of the other centers interact uh, to some degree with policymakers, and it's no surprise when everybody when anybody talks about tech issues, uh, I'm right outside of Washington, here in Washington, yeah. they they look at at least the Senate. Let's just say they're not spring chickens, so they don't understand <laughs> the technology um, as as well as you and your students. What sort of interaction does, does the center that you're involved in have with policymakers? Do they reach out to you for re- uh, research, for projects, for white papers, that sort of thing?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of, you know, advise consent kind of kind of relationships. In fact, it just so happens that after our call this afternoon, I'm going to be chatting with someone in the Office of Science and Technology Policy at the White House talking about some of the new privacy legislation that's coming out. And they just want to pick my brain on, on how I think about, about some of these issues. So it's a lot of spaces where we've built up some expertise and we can help provide some guidance as... The you know, legislatures or policymakers, and also companies as well, are are sort of devising their strategies. So, so we've done work, um, with you know with with folks in Washington, but also with with folks in Silicon Valley, and and providing guidance for teams at at Facebook or Meta, uh, Microsoft, and Google as as they start thinking about some of the challenges that they're facing when they're engaging in in new product development or or internal research. And and so I'm able to to help serve and provide, provide guidance there. So um, it's really an important part of this. And it's it's a way that I was trained, you know, as a, as a scholar was to, to not just sit back and, and, and complain and write essays and journals that, that just, that just, you know, kind of, kind of moan about what's happening in the world, but to actually engage, you know, proactively and pragmatically with designers, with policymakers, with educators, you know, because, you know, we need to uh, sort of a multi-pronged approach to try to address these problems. And, and we're lucky to be able to do that uh, from the center as well.
0: Uh, that's, that's really comforting to know that because yeah. that, so, that is so essential that they are reaching out. It, so two, two other things that um, I noticed from looking both at the website and some of the information that you provided about your background. You've been involved recently in something called the Spatial Project, which the subtitle that I saw was Cybersecurity Solutions in Europe. Yep. Obviously, cybersecurity is a key issue all over the globe. What is the spatial project and what can you, what can you tell us about your involvement there?
1: Yeah, this is an exciting project that it's perhaps it's a, it's a, it's a good example of how some parts of the world might be a little bit better at being active in, in legislating and and supporting, you know, developing some of these spaces where, where sometimes our, our Congress is a little bit behind. Um, This was a, a large consortium funded by the European union and the European commission as, as part of the, there's probably a dozen or so, uh, both university and industry partners all across Europe uh, who have come together to try to find ways to build trustworthy, resilient, uh, accountable AI uh, tools and platforms, especially around cybersecurity as it relates to the telecom industry and and a couple of other uh, high impact industries. Um, so, you know, their, their website has, you know, all the major sort of uh, uh, telecom and, and, and other uh, uh, companies across different European states, and they have some use cases. They're trying to figure out what's the right way to create, you know, a privacy-protecting AI platform. How do we make it transparent so it can be, so it can be audited, so it can be understandable mm-hmm. and explainable? All big challenges. Um, and my involvement is uh, being, you know, their ethics advisor. And And they're dealing with customer data. Uh, they might be uh, building some systems that might leverage uh, user data in ways that just need to have someone some oversight. Um, and that that's my role there. So I was lucky to be able to to, to have we had a team meeting in, in Barcelona just a few weeks ago uh, and was able to spend a few days with the different groups and hearing about their projects. Um, and again, discussing some of the broader, ethical dimensions that makes the European Union comfortable that they have someone like me there to provide that oversight. Um, and we get to provide our expertise to shape these projects. So it's really some exciting work that they're, they're doing from the European perspective.
0: So oh, that, that does sound great. And we'll definitely follow up with you as that yeah. project continues. The other thing I noticed, um, one of the, um, it was a publication that I think you helped edit, you were definitely involved with it. Uh, in our world, law enforcement constantly warns bankers about the dark web, right? Yeah. okay and so they say it's a haven for terrorist activity, human trafficking, wildlife trafficking, um, all sorts of uh, illegal acts, uh, again, the movement of a list of funds, all sorts of harmful things. but at least the quick blurb that I looked at said that the author said that in some cases there are clear legitimate uses for the dark web which that's the first time i've heard that although obviously i'm not an expert and i you know don't dive into these things tell us a bit about that because as i said whenever we're told about quote the dark web it's always don't interact on it if your customers are you have any information that's at a minimum suspicious and may maybe actually be illegal what's What's the notion there? This is another perfect example of trying to get experts like yourself to say, yeah. you know, wait a second, it's not always black and white, but tell me tell me about the the dark web.
1: Yeah, and this and this might be a challenge of our our metaphors and our use of the term dark here to describe this particular,
0: you know, okay. online
1: online space. It's it's certainly true that I suspect the vast majority of interactions and transactions that are occurring in what we call the dark web are, are probably there because they want to um, avoid scrutiny from law enforcement <laughs> or, or anyone else. So there is undoubtedly uh, a, a, a large amount of illegal activity or other questionable activity, but some of the other ways that this space, you know, and, and, and for listeners, you know, th- these are, you know, it's online, it's, it's a set of protocols and a set of tools that largely make you um, untrackable. And, and, and so even your you even your, your ISP or or law enforcement really have a hard time seeing who you are or what you're doing. Yeah. This, this can be very useful for journalists and for journalists that are uh, doing with whistleblowers that are trying to avoid, you know, Mm -hmm. any, any monitoring from, from their employer Um, parts of the world where you're worried about the government monitoring your activity and you're trying to engage perhaps in human rights work, or again, you know, if you're, if you're in um, Iran and you're trying to get information out about the current protests that are happening and you want to avoid you know the the Iranian government monitoring what you're doing maybe putting your family in danger you might use the dark web as as the way to communicate and 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 do that um and then you know there are some people out there who are just sort of uber privacy concerned and they're worried about anybody snooping on anything that they do so right. they're using the dark web you know just for their everyday internet activity uh because they have a certain level of Concern or paranoia about about these things, um, but but there are yeah there there are um, you know quite quite a few um, examples of of people using these kinds of tools because they're trying to avoid for what we would probably consider uh, largely legitimate reasons you know monitoring or tracking. Uh, we've also seen examples of this even in like domestic abuse cases or things where you're just so worried. That's some other um, you know, member of your, your circle might be monitoring everything you do. So you're trying to find a tool to provide you that extra layer. So as a researcher, it can be really interesting to study these spaces and who's using it and why. And that's why there's been a little bit more attention on on the research ethics um, side of, of things that I also engage with on how can we study these spaces safely? Um, and in ways that that also don't put even the researchers in danger, because it is it is easy to get to get into trouble um, when when you start poking around in, in some of the corners of the dark web. That's for sure. Well, that's an interesting description,
0: and and I certainly get get your point. I think we found in our the financial sector that in some cases, uh, when we have to file, the banks have to file a report for a certain transaction. If that report it gets done, sort of in the presence of the customer, some of them are obviously concerned about that because they're saying, "Wait, I'm I'm just doing a cash transaction over over ten thousand dollars because because I'm depositing um, money I made selling a car, you know? Right, so right. why why, did, why does the government need to do so?" I could see that that would be the case, and I think your example about domestic violence makes makes a lot of sense. So, um, you know, I think it's what's helpful here is what you're doing at the center. Uh, seems to me, broadly speaking, is not just being transparent, but trying to be accurate. I know that sounds right. a little facetious, but no, I mean, accuracy is important to understand the data. Um, so I have a couple more things for you. One is I noticed on uh, your uh, signature, you know, several links to uh, your website, the center's website, all that sort of thing, which is great. But you also had a link to something called the Zuckerberg files. And so right. I, <laughs> I, pull, I pulled that up, and for those that aren't aware, obviously going to let. It's a digital archive of all public utterances of CEO Mark Zuckerberg from at least 2004 to, to last year, 2002. Why are you involved in that? Yeah, yeah. What is what is it designed to do? And and give us a snapshot of it.
1: So, yeah, this is a a digital archive. In fact, I spent some time this weekend updating uh, just some things that he said in the last week or so. Um, One of my one of my long uh, research areas has been online privacy. Um, And uh, this was probably back around 2010 or so. And I was starting to study Facebook and and how they deal with privacy. And um, I remember this quite well. I was at a meeting with some other privacy scholars and advocates um, at Facebook at the time. And it was a meeting talking about some of what Facebook was doing around user privacy and default settings. And this was just when people were starting to sort of get a little bit more concerned about this. And it was, a, it was an informal gathering uh, to just sort of talk things out. And there were a number of policy people from Facebook and, and legal folks there. And it struck me that when we were all talking about privacy, they would all change the language and talk about user control and 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 use different different phrases and and it just struck me that maybe there was like a memo that went around to say never use the word privacy you always call it something else you know and and i don't know if that was true or not but it just got me to think start thinking about the language that facebook uses around things like privacy and so i started looking at what zuckerberg and some of the speeches he's made around that time around privacy and I just thought this was an interesting research question about you know when he's asked about privacy how does he describe it what does it mean to him what is what is the words that he uses and as I was gathering documents to do this this research I realized I was building a little library here of everything that Zuckerberg has ever said um, about about this topic and why don't I make this available to other researchers So, it took me a few years to get it up and running. And it was around 2013 when I launched the archive. And we track um, everything that Zuckerberg says. So, it could be posts that he makes on Facebook itself. It could be interviews he gives, speeches he gives, product launches, testimony before Congress. Uh, We've even, uh, there's now been like publicly um, available internal communications that have been released due to lawsuits. We have a large archive. There's well over a thousand records. Um, It's available for researchers. It's available for the media. It's been used by even uh, attorneys and law enforcement trying to gather information for whatever reason they are. (laughs) Um, And uh, it's been interesting to sort of track how his language changes over time, how what issues are important at any given time. And that might be reflected in what he's posting about on Facebook or not. He can sort of track sort of longitudinally whether or not his language has shifted in terms of how he describes what his mission is or what his goal is for the platform. So those are the kinds of things that researchers use this for. Um, And I think Zuckerberg's an interesting example. I mean, there are, of course, you know, thousands of CEOs out there. Um, But I I find him unique in that there are few CEOs who are so – linked with the brand of their organization. And I think Steve Jobs was an example of this.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: maybe Elon Musk is right now, p- perhaps not for good reasons, but but just you know the way that Zuckerberg thinks about the world really shapes how that company is, is run and how those, those apps and those platforms are developed. Um, and he's also unique, seeing that, you know he was thrust into this role as a college student, you know, suddenly became a billionaire. He has such an interesting history um, where it's just been kind of um, um, a, a, an interesting journey to watch him grow and develop even just as a person. And this archive lets us kind of, kind of do that. Um, so it's become kind of a labor of love. I can't give it up anymore because <laughs> Facebook's yeah. gotten even more important in the world, you know, and, and right. debates over content and, and, and misinformation and all these things so it, it's been it's been a lot of work but it's been a lot of fun uh, keeping keeping that up and running. yeah
0: <laughs> no that's great um i'll get you out of here on this uh, sure. dr michael zimmer is the director of center for data ethics and society at marquette there's a lot of great information uh, michael on your website and uh, maybe next time we talk i'd love to talk to you about a recent article where you were quoted about the use of ai by uh, police departments regarding body cams. I mean, there's so, there's so many different avenues, but let me just end on this. What what do you consider successful for the center besides the obvious? You're working with policymakers. Yeah. You're obviously get, getting consulted on things. You're doing all the research, but what in the overall goal in terms of students? Going through the uh, the program into society you know, what do you hope to accomplish and it may not be measurable it may not there may not be metrics, but from your perspective as the first director of the center what 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 are you happiest about when you see things that you can call successful
1: I, I think our our primary goal is is how we're helping shape students you know to go make a difference in the world and as they're doing that in environments that involve technology and data and these kinds of you know increasing algorithmic systems that they have a deep awareness of of these complicated issues that they're not just thinking that data and technology is the automatic solution that it, that it's more complex and that they have to reflect um maybe they have to slow down um maybe they have to ask some hard questions but but that they really sort of have this this broad sense um, and it could be through the teaching I'm doing. It could be through research projects. It could be through service that we're doing, and and, and engagement. Um, but but that that as we as we graduate students and as as we you know make a mark in the world through through Marquette, uh, that we're able to sort of you know really push that message home, and that that's success to me.
0: Yeah, Michael, thank you so much for your time. I think uh, I'll be back to you at some point to do some follow-ups to some of these projects. Not only sound fascinating, they sound very valuable, uh, as as I said before, adjacencies to our community because data is so so successful to successful t- prosecution in some cases, enablement of allowing uh, institutions to continue yep. to bank to bank um, customers that are maybe put in the wrong bucket because of a, of a poorly listed algorithm or something along those lines. So um, thank you so much. Uh, good luck with Center go Marquette. We're getting ready for March Madness. <laughs> That's and, right. uh, th- this has been an exciting time. So uh, Michael, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much.
1: So thank you, John. I really appreciate this opportunity and look forward to future conversations. Great.